Hey there, Freedom Fight. Well, this is like a lean-in interview for me. Uh, I can't even introduce myself. Partially, I'm leaning in because, and what leaning in means in, in this couch where I am in an Airbnb in Austin, Texas, means like my shirt's looping in. I'm going, is this like showing too much chest hair? It's not. But is it showing too much eagerness? Probably. I think I'm overwhelming Victoria in the pre-interview conversation. You're probably at the end of your day or sometime like in a, in a busy day and you're like, Andrew's firing questions at me before we even started. How do you feel, Victoria? I feel great. It's fun to reconnect. Yeah. Victoria Ransom was one of my first guests back in 2010 when she discovered the power of Facebook for businesses and she actually made it work way beyond what what others had. Truthfully, she was there at a time when there were a lot of people who were creating apps for Facebook for businesses. And there's something that she did, and I have a hunch, I have some ideas based on our past interviews and my following the business over the years, there's something that she did that allowed it to grow much bigger than others and become more of a substantial business than others. And, um, and so I interviewed her about Wildfire back in 2010, and now I'd like to do a little bit of catch up on what happened there and just since it's been a few years to understand why that business did well where others in the Facebook business social space uh, didn't. And then also the other reason I'm leaning forward is if you've listened to my interviews over the last uh, say year or two, you see I'm fascinated by the new approaches to to education. I've always talked on Mixergy about how much I hated school growing up and I don't believe that that's the experience kids should go through. And also, I think that it needs to be more customized than that. Um, and on a personal level, my wife and I don't agree on this, but we both are aligned in, in that we don't like traditional, we, we don't agree in the direction that that makes sense, but we both agree that, that the, the mainstream education just sucks. Anyway, so I want to talk to Victoria about her new business. It's called Prisma, and it allows parents who want to have homeschooling be done in a more professional way than I did it back in the early days of COVID to get that support and to have a team of people who are really uh, doing it well. I invited her here to talk about both both businesses, and we can do it thanks to my two sponsors. The first will host your website right. It's called HostGator. And the second, if you're doing email marketing, I'll tell you why you should be going and checking out Send in Blue, and I'll talk about those later. But first, Victoria, good to have you here. Nice to be here. I'm looking forward to this conversation. You know what? First of all, for years, I heard that uh, Google bought you back in 2012 for $450 million. And I remember you telling me it was a bootstrap company. Is that number accurate? It is. Yes. It is. Yes. There's a number of numbers around on the internet, but I guess I think at this point I can confirm that is an accurate number. Yeah. Yes. It's been a, about a decade now. And I remember going back and before my interview with you, creating an account on Wildfire and seeing that it, I think I created a contest. And whenever somebody joined the contest, they would basically be following my page, maybe even giving me their email address and then also sharing it. And mm -hmm. so there were a number of companies that did apps like this. Looking back, what, what do you think it was that allowed you to scale up so much? It's a great question. And I'm curious what your ideas are too. Um, a few thoughts come to mind. One is we became very good at sales. I would say we built a very strong sales machine. And as it turned out, uh, I think, you know, for, for most companies, they do want to speak to someone before uh, they sign up and use your product, particularly because 
over time, and when we first spoke, this was not the case, but over time we became a subscription model. So generally there's a sales process associated with that. And we just got really good, I would say, with humble opinion, at hiring uh, young, inexperienced salespeople straight out of college, training them up, screening out those, you know, for whom it wasn't a good fit. And we had other places in the company for them. Um, and just having a very efficient and effective uh, online, so it was all done virtually back in the day when virtual wasn't such a big thing, uh, sales machine. Um, so that was one thing. In the very early days, perhaps when we were talking, the very nature of our model was viral. And that certainly helped. And you just mentioned it, that uh, when someone ran a contest, then lots of people would enter in that contest. When they entered the contest, it would say powered by wildfire at the bottom and you could click and then sign up and create your own contest. And if a company didn't want that on their contest, they had to pay quite a lot more. So we also had this great price differentiation thing going on. Um, uh, you know, the other thing, this is at a sort of a higher level, I feel really proud and it's one of the best things I do. I think we did it while for just creating a fantastic culture. I think we had a team that just was, you know, running on all engines, worked extremely well together, had a lot of fun together. And so that enabled us to retain employees really well. It enabled us to recruit employees. I think over 50% of our hires were referrals from existing um, wildfire team members. Um, and, you know, it frankly enabled us to, we were bootstrapped. So we didn't have the kind of perks and benefits that a lot of others, better funded companies had in our space. But uh, when it all boils down to it, I think people just want to enjoy the job. They want to enjoy the team they're working with. And that's what we did have. Um, and so those are the things that come to mind that I think we did really well at Wildfire. I would also add on to that. There was this sense in the entrepreneurs that I interviewed who were in that space at the time that this is like a quick buck, that Facebook is this machine that will, and it made the money amazingly fast. And they were in that quick buck mentality where they were trying to milk Facebook's weaknesses and lack of protections by like automatically checking every uh, friend when you were trying to share it. And I don't know whether you did or not, but they were, whether you did or you didn't do it at all, they were, they were in the mentality of looking for those next big viral hooks that would give them the big pop. And I remember even when I talked to you, the first thing that I noticed about your site was you had big brands on your site. You had more enterprisey feel to you. And I think that there's a difference there in the long-term, bigger, stodgier, what they thought was stodgier businesses that you were going after. And now I'm also learning that you were doing more of what the enterprise was looking for, which is phone calls and conversations. Mm -hmm. Got it. Where they weren't. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was- You're right. I mean, what you're describing was the spamminess- of Facebook and Facebook marketing at that time. And there was a right. lot more opportunity to do that. And uh, yeah, I think we were 
working with perhaps more quality companies and we were trying to, yeah, we also expanded beyond just promotions and contests to provide a full suite of it was social vir- media everything, virtual services. gifts, coupons, the landing page that was people's homepage you did. Right. Um, I think you even broke out by 2010 of Facebook, but you were already talking about to me that businesses shouldn't have to hire somebody to do their Facebook fan page back when it was a static page on Facebook and their viral apps, which were things like contests and coupons mm-hmm. and a homepage developer. We'll just do it. They come to us. We give them the thing. Um, so I see that I see that thought process. When you're thinking about hiring salespeople, you kind of remind me about SendGrid. SendGrid was also one of these companies that said, we understand that most businesses are not going to just buy off of a landing page, no matter how studied your landing page is. We're going to do calls. But I remember also that Techstars introduced me to SendGrid's new CEO. And I said, wait, why do they need a new CEO? And when he did an interview with me, he said, it's tough to create a process for selling. You could sell and you could teach people to do it well because you've got gut instincts for how to do it, but systemizing it is tough. You systemized it. What was your system like? And then how did you even develop that process? Yeah, well, we developed over time. And honestly, at a certain point in Wildfire's early days, if you'd said, are you going to build a sales team? We would have said, no way, that's not scalable and everyone will just buy online. But we learned we needed to. Um, We had, I think, a really great model for, like I said, training up people that had no sales experience, um, sort of uh, putting them in a boot camp type experience and then they came out of that either successful or they didn't. And a few things related to that. One is we built a recruiting machine. So I think by the time we sold Google, um, Wildfire to Google, I think we had like 15 or 17 full-time recruiters at, uh, at Wildfire. And they got really good at doing things like getting candidates to submit videos so we could see very quickly if they felt like a good fit. And so recruiting we got good at encouraging employee referrals as part of that recruiting we got good at. Uh, when we bought, uh, you know, first-time salespeople into the company, they started out as sales associates. It was a six-month process. They were training during that time. So we had lots of, I think it may have been that large part of every Friday was dedicated to actual training, workshops. Uh, and then the rest of the time, they were basically trying to get leads and appointments for the rest of the more experienced sales team. Oh, so you did SDRs a- at a time when people weren't doing it, uh, sales development we, reps. Yeah, apparently we did. We didn't call them that. Um, right, right. Yeah, and that's a hard job. That is a tiring, exhausting job. And so I think it quite quickly sorted people out um, who had that hunger. The other thing is we always had a very heavy commission model. So we paid the absolute bare minimum base salary that we could and then had heavy commissions, which again, really incentivized those that did well to stick around and those that didn't to move on or or find another role in the company. Uh, We also developed a fantastic um, sales operations team that really, I'd say, engineered Salesforce to the nth degree. So we really had fantastic data, real-time data on how, um, you know, how different sales reps were doing. We, and this is not unusual, but we celebrated every sale in a really big way. We had this huge gong 
in the middle of uh, the sales floor. And anytime someone, you know, signed a contract, they would go and gong the gong and spread leaderboards. This is so much and- of the stuff that people in tech were re- rebelling against needlessly. It was just, we are not everything that came before us. We're brand new. But when you talk about doing that, I don't know how you were able to do it. I think you were an analyst at Morgan Stanley before. It wasn't mm-hmm. like you were even um, in in management consulting where I've noticed that people come into startups with this discipline, system-wide, systems-based process. How did you even know to do all this? Uh, partially common sense and trial and error. Uh, and partially, by, by the way, like, Wildfire was a team. So like I came up with all of these ideas as a team, we came up with ideas and we tried them. Um, we just had such a scrappy experimental mentality from day one, I think where let's try this. But we also had a number of early salespeople that came from a company called Fisher Investments that had a pretty good, uh, sort of internal sales process themselves. And so I think we also took some inspiration from that company. Um, I'd have to think back to not exactly how they ran their sales, but they certainly had a sales machine going. What was this company? This wasn't an investment company that invested in you, right? It was someone that you hired from and then you learned from their process. Yes. Ah, okay. And then what was the price point? Uh... So we moved to subscription model and the subscriptions range from about $20,000 a year to $40,000 a year. God, that was also gutsy that I didn't realize it was that high. And so that does allow you to do more. Got it. Wow. Um, yeah, we that was sort a- of hit a, um, we had a real sweet spot. You're right. We had these huge enterprise brands mm-hmm. on our website. And in fact, again, I'd say one of the things we did right is we did whatever it took to get the first two or three big logos that meant doing it for free, staying up all week, yep. doing a custom thing for Pepsi, I think maybe Pepsi actually. Um, so you get those first logos. But in fact, our sweet spot was sort of, I'd say, mid-sized companies because the really large enterprises, you could do much bigger deals than what I just described. You could do multi-hundred, you know, $100,000 plus deals. But then you had to fly out there in person and there was a long sales mm. cycle. And so I think we found the sweet spot of, I'd say, mid-tier companies where you could actually do the sale virtually. Uh, you didn't have to go and wine and dine them. You could get a decision. You could get to a decision maker quite quickly. That ended up being our sweet spot, I think. What type of businesses are we talking about? Like local made businesses, things like that, restaurants? Uh, no, it? those were too small. No, okay. maybe like a um, multi-restaurant chain would be a good Got example okay. or a boutique hotel chain that had seven or eight uh, hotels, but not Marriott. But it was not small businesses. We did try the small business angle. What we discovered there, I think, you know, we had a price point of $99 a month. The problem with that is those businesses wanted to spend as much time in the sales process as a mid-tier business, because for them, it was a big expense. Right. And so it's hard to justify that. And then why did Google decide that they wanted into this business? Yeah, that was unexpected. Of all the possible acquirers, to be honest, we didn't have Google mm-hmm. on in mind. Um, well, Google is, uh, you know, one of the most important advertising companies in the world. They have uh, you know, they're trying to provide a comprehensive advertising solution to their clients. 
they have search ads, they have display ads, and many of their customers were saying, what about social ads and social media marketing? It's like the one piece of the puzzle uh, that Google was not providing. And so they looked to Wildfire to basically be able to provide the full suite solution to their uh, brand customers. And then how did your culture change after being a part of Google? And you stayed with Google for years. I stayed for three Didn't years. Three, three years, years, yeah. Three years, yeah. Um, but you know, Google was, Google was a fantastic acquirer from the standpoint of our culture. Um, they were extremely hands-off. We got our own building with Wildfire team in there. And to be perfectly honest, I think we got acquired in, in August. And by about <laughs> uh, September, we were saying, wait a minute, is someone going to tell us what to do? <laughs> Are there some goals here? It was very hands-off. And I think perhaps... Google has learned that if you come in too heavy-handed, you do crash startups mm. and you crash culture. Um, so I would say the biggest things we, that had to change is there's just more um, legal processes. When it came to legal finance PR, suddenly there was all kinds of restrictions. But beyond that, uh, I think we kept our culture really well for as long as it lasted. That Eventually, um, Wildfire very much got diluted inside of Google. Happy to explain that. Um, the other thing I'd say is it was a good cultural fit. The culture of Google was a pretty good fit for the culture of Wildfire, I think. And so that we weren't sort of set up for a clash right from day one in the way that we may have done if we'd gone with perhaps a little bit more old school uh, media company or technology company. All right. Um before we close out that part of your life, how did your life change because of the sale? I mean, on a personal level, did you, are you into fancy cars? Did you finally get to buy a house? Did you finally stop eating ramen? <laughs> I did, <laughs> I did ramen eat person. ramen back in you the day. You did? I didn't when think I you were. To you, I think I did, but you know, that was not a financial, that was a like work-life balance problem. Love it. Okay. Um, yeah, you had like 400 people when we talked. I mean, it was a pretty oh, oh, big maybe operation. I'd gone past ramen nearly. Okay. Definitely remember ramen in the early days. Um, wow. I, I mean, yes, my life has changed a lot. Up until that point, I we had always rented. Our furniture was still the same furniture that we'd had as students in college. I think I may have just gotten my first lease on a car. Um, but I grew up in a rural community in New Zealand with very down-to-earth parents. And I love, love, love that that was my upbringing. And I've tried to keep that mindset and that mentality as much as I possibly can. And so, um, you know, there's no luxury brands in my closet. Uh, much to my, um, my sister's surprise, she says, why are you not buying better clothes now you can afford them? Um, I'm just not a luxury car, luxury anything kind of person, really. But look, we are now on home and it's very nice. It, we, and there we, was a change in like the ability to travel. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But first, actually, speaking of, of like lifestyle changes, one of the other people who was in your space was a guy named Noah Kagan. Do you remember Noah Kagan? He was uh, he was a little bit in the Facebook platform and kind of got wiped out quickly. He ended up creating AppSumo, which so the Facebook business wasn't doing didn't do well. He kind of got sued by one of his vendors anyway. Um, and he also wasn't thinking the same way you are today. He is with AppSumo. His life now that it's now that he's made it is changed dramatically. First of all, his house is stunning here in Austin. Second, he's got someone a house manager 
who makes sure that all the things are stocked. And then I took my kids to trick-or-treat at his house because we've known him for, for years. He handed out $2 bills instead of candy. I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> the kid's going, what is this? He's giving us fake. It. No. <laughs> they, didn't. they didn't love that. Uh, I, I thought the mere novelty alone, when we were trick-or-treating, someone was handing out little mini Play-Dohs and the kids were so excited just because it was Because it wasn't candy. Yeah. Because it wasn't um, candy. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, we do not hand out $2 No $2 bills. bills at your house. At Halloween. No. Um, you should go trick-or-treat at Noah Kagan's house if you're ever yeah, there. Yeah, really? Absolutely. <laughs> that sounds great. All the kids there's will a, be there there's next also year. An easy- uh, there's also an easy way to know which his house is, but I'm not going to say it. It's just, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. So coming back to your more, um, I guess, rustic background, your family was, was it asparagus farmers I read on Wikipedia? Yep. It That's was. the first line of your Wikipedia entry. And then you and our producer talked about how you didn't have a lemonade stand. You had an asparagus stand in New Zealand. What is it? an asparagus stand? Oh, well, it, outside our gate on the road, there was a little wooden shack that my dad had built for my sister and I, and we'd have to pick asparagus in the morning, put it into little plastic bags. We had like an ice cream container with a hole in the top where people would poke the money in. Ah. And when we got home from school at the end of the day, then we had, usually the bags of asparagus were gone and there was money in the ice cream container, which was pretty awesome. Complete trust system, honor system. Total people. trust system. Wow. Did you get to keep it? Yep. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep. Did you get to make any changes to it to make more sales or anything that like that? No. We could have if we'd been that awful about it, but I can't recall. Oh, yes. You know what? We did. We branched out into delivery. We had a little ah. trolley and I lived near a river and people would go there fishing and we'd take a little trolley with little bags of asparagus on it and we'd stop by the fishermen and fisherwomen and they would buy our, our asparagus products. So there you go. We did branch out. Wow, my parents used to like for me to go out and sell and they would encourage me. They would they would not even have any costs sometimes. Like they would pay for everything. I would get to keep all the all the revenue as my profit just to encourage me to do it. And it was the one place where I wasn't shy as a kid, you know. You're told this is what you're this is what you do and I got comfortable going and selling. And then there's a superpower to being creative at sales. Yes. I, I you know, coming back to the wildfire story very briefly, having seen Young people come straight out of college and go into a sales role. That's a, if you don't know exactly what you want to do with your life, that's a fabulous place to start because those skills, both perseverance and picking yourself up in the face of being told no and yeah. um, the discipline that it takes are so transferable to be just about anything you do in life, I think. So if you get that at a young age when you're a child, even much better. I agree. I, even like we went out in Austin, I don't know people. I still use the same sales techniques. Like how many people did I talk to, right? You can't say you don't know anyone. All right. I should say my my interview here is sponsored by a company called Send In Blue. If you need email marketing done right, there are lots of companies, frankly, that'll do it, Victoria. Let's be honest, right? So why should someone use Send In Blue? Well, number one, they do all the email marketing automation that you need. If somebody buys from you, you don't have to send them a will you buy from me email. That's kind of a dorky thing to do. So you can tag them as purchasing and then message them separately. And all that stuff's included and done easily. Here's the beauty about Send in Blue that other people have raved to me about. They don't ratchet up the price. So you sign up and you don't get one of these free to start. And then next month after you get to 1,000 people, it jumps up. And then when you get to 100,000 people, suddenly you're paying literally a quarter, what is it, 250, no, $25,000 a year. Some people have told me they're paying for their email marketing at that level. And it, it makes sense. 
making money, you don't have time to switch, so you stick with your email provider. Well, you know what? How about you make the right decision from the beginning? Check out Send in Blue. I'm going to let you try them for free and give you a big discount after for three months. I can't give a big discount beyond that because, frankly, they're already low prices. But I can give you some way to get started, <clears throat> and that is to tell you to go to sendinblue.com slash Mixergy and just try them out. You'll see why so many people love them. Sendinblue.com slash Mixergy. All right, so it seems like the thing that got you interested in Prisma is the idea that you want to be flexible with where you live, right? Now you're no longer eating ramen, no longer having to go into the same office. Everybody's talking about digital nomad, and I get it. I used to be a skeptic, but it makes so much sense. My wife and I get so much value out of our lives when we're waking up and having coffee in a different country, sitting in coffee shops in different countries. Then you get kids, and you're locked into their school. You can't even leave until they're past eighth grade. And so it seems like that's what, talk about what your version of that is. Yeah. So the, there were really two inspirations for how we've ended up uh, with Prisma. And that was one that we had very deliberately, you know, so we haven't talked about the fact that my husband and I have three children. The oldest is seven. We have a four-year-old and a three-year-old. Uh, so life changed. Suddenly we had kids to think about. And for a while there, we were able to arrange this very flexible life for ourselves. We'd always said, uh, if and when we start a new venture, it will be fully distributed so that we can be flexible. Uh, it's important to me that my children spend time in New Zealand. Their dad is from Switzerland. It's important to him. They spend time there. And then as our oldest started to get to kindergarten age, like, oh no, wait a minute. We've created this flexible life, but school is not flexible. So that was the first thing that got us wondering, are there other educational models? We didn't start by thinking, well, let's start school. Uh, we thought by thinking what's out there that is more flexible. The other thing though, uh, so we live in the Bay Area and one thing that's always concerned me about living in the Bay Area is uh, there's no shortage of high quality schools, but I, there's a lot of pressure put on kids in schools in the Bay Area. And I think this You is felt true. it even with a seven-year-old? I did not feel it with my own children. Uh, I saw it with the children of friends and I uh -huh. heard anecdotes. Uh, how, did it it, how did it express itself? For me, what I saw, we, we were up until a few weeks ago living in the Bay Area. Freaking spreadsheets, Victoria. Spreadsheets yeah. about every school. We hired a consultant for, for kindergarten, I swear, to walk right. us through. He came in our house. He was a principal before. Um, that's what I felt. But what did you yeah. see that the kids were going through? Uh, well, so I, it was the spreadsheets. It was the anecdotes. I just spoke to someone recently who moved from the Bay Area to Austin, by the way, and he was describing how, uh, three-year-olds were pe being put into magnesium so they could get a, a jump start on their math. Um, I heard it from the kid's pediatrician and from, um, my GP that talk about anxiety levels, incredibly high number of kids, particularly girls suffering from anxiety in their teenage years in the Bay Area. Uh, so it, a bunch of different anecdotes and, and I could see it. It's not surprising to me. It's a, it's an area with very successful type A parents and it's yeah. natural that that's going to lead to this kind of culture. And I think I was very attuned to it because it's the polar opposite of what I experienced in my own, own education. And I don't know if my education was ideal, but I went to low-key schools, pretty me mediocre, to be honest. 
but therefore I was able to do really well and I developed a lot of confidence and there was not a lot of stress. Uh, I also grew up in New Zealand where there was not this huge pressure to get into good universities and colleges. Uh, so I was just always nervous about whether that was the environment that I wanted my children to be educated in. So those two things were in the back of our mind when we sort of went down the road of really looking at all kinds of different approaches to education. Uh, we, you know, we found that there's a ton of really, um, or quite a few really innovative schools out there. There's not a shortage of interesting ideas. What there is a shortage of is scalable models that are innovative that can reach large numbers of kids. Um, you know, but- what did you see when when it wasn't scalable? What, and by the way, do you want to go and shut the blind or something? I feel like oh, there's light coming right on your I'm, face and you have to okay. keep dodging just, it. Okay. I'll just move around here. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I think the majority of really innovative schools are private schools. Uh, they're very expensive. And in order to cater to that private school market, they have great facilities. And as soon as you're trying to deal with great facilities and school buildings, it's really hard to scale in any kind of large, meaningful way. So we, we also got inspired by the homeschool world, which we never expected to look at. And, and what we got inspired by with homeschooling is the flexibility for the family. Yes. But the flexibility for the child, the ability to really cater the education around the speed of learning of the child. The yeah. interests of the child. Right. Homeschooling is well known to just be really efficient. Like most homeschool families, and we interviewed a ton, would say it takes about 60 to 90 minutes a day to make sure their kid gets through what they're meant to get through. And the rest of the day is available for that child to dive into whatever is most of interest to them versus most kids who are in school for six hours a day. But you know, studies I've looked at would say only 90 minutes of that, maybe two hours is actual learning. Um, so we were inspired by that too. And really what we got really um, interested in was this idea of, is there a way to deliver a model of education that really incorporates some of the best, most innovate, innovative practices in education, like project-based learning and interdisciplinary learning that really honors the individuality of the child and enables them to move at the pace that works best for them and enables them to explore based on their interests. And that really prepares kids for the kind of world that they're going to live in, which I think is vastly different from the world we live in today. And school was not designed for that world. Uh, could we do all of that in an online model that if it works, then there's a way to believe that that could be much more scalable than a bricks and mortar schooling model. Because then you get access to talented teachers all over. Do you call your teachers coaches? We call them coaches. Coaches. That's so you get access to more teachers, more coaches. You also get to adjust on the, on the fly without having to see which teachers available locally when you want to teach something. What about then, if the student is done, what do they do in the house after that? I mean, so, whether it's homeschooling or not. Yeah. So we Prisma kids are spending more than 90 minutes a day. My um, example there was just in order to get through sort of the core learning that kids need to get through. Uh, that's how long most homeschool families have told me that, that it takes. Uh, Prisma kids 
their schedule is flexible, but on average, I would say they're spending between four to six hours a day, four for those kids for whom four hours is enough and six for those kids for whom six hours makes sense for them on their Prisma learning each day. Uh, but instead of just needing to focus on sort of learning the content that'll help them pass the standardized tests that they're going to be given at the end of the semester, Prisma learners are spending time deep diving into projects, solving real world problems, uh, involved in clubs uh, with other learners that are really of interest to them. So we are you know, filling their day, but with um, with work that we think is both really meaningful and fun to the kids and will really help Can you them give me an develop. example? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, Prisma operates in uh, five-week cycles and every cycle uh, has a different sort of overarching theme and we pick themes on the basis of what we think will be relevant to kids' lives today and in the future and will be really exciting to them. So in fact, right now, that the theme that the kids are working on is called Build a Business. And it's all about entrepreneurship. Now there's some really great math outcomes in there. They're learning a ton about economics. I, I bet there are not many fourth and fifth graders in the country that are learning the kind of economics that our kids are learning right now. So there's academics built in there. Uh, but in the course of doing that, every kid in our program is having to come up with their own business idea and their own business plan. Uh, some are doing it with others. Some are doing it on their own. On top of that, they get to specialize in a certain area of where they're going to really flesh out their business ideas. So some are really working on product development and iteration right now. Others are working on a marketing campaign for their business. Uh, in our live workshops, uh, the kids, one of our live workshops in this cycle is, uh, it's a reenactment of Shark Tank. So the kids are investors and they are having to evaluate businesses and figure out what their returns are and understand what it's like to make good returns or to go bankrupt. Um, so, you know, th these are ways for kids to learn in a really hands-on way. It's really applied. It's super fun. They can go really deep into areas that they want to go into. That's just one example. Other themes, uh, cities of the future we've done, we've done, um, a theme recently called Uncharted Territories, where the kids learned all about space exploration and deep sea exploration. Uh, so, and so they would be learning it together from a teacher who's on, is, I guess it's, is it Zoom that you're using or something um, else? Yes and no. So uh, we are still using Zoom some of the time, but we've actually built our own live learning platform called Prisma Live, which okay. is... Uh, in beta right now, we use it for some of our workshops. And it's basically just uh, imagine Zoom being built explicitly for um, K-12 learners to be able to learn and collaborate online in a really engaging way. Yeah, I would imagine then that means where with Zoom, only one person can control the mouse at a time, or two, I guess, me, and then the person who's remote. I'm imagining you would want more of the students to be able to interact with the screen at the same time. All kinds of or things. What it, else? Yeah, it ranges from uh, we make it really seamless for the curriculum team to create sort of a multimedia experience during the workshop that the coach can seamlessly move through um, uh, in a way that really enables the kids to interact. So there's live polls that'll happen and 
that's the basis for um, the coach to, you know, start a discussion about something. Uh, so this idea, you know, a lot of the research we did said that what makes us tired with Zoom is the fact that you're staring at the same thing for a long time. And the more you can change the view, the imagery, the perspectives, the better. So that's one thing. We, for example, um, you know, use breakout rooms a lot so kids can collaborate in small groups. And rather than a coach having to jump from room to room to room and interrupt the flow of what's happening in that room to figure out if the kids need help, she or he can actually listen in to what's happening in any given breakout room without jumping in there. Mm -hmm. And we allow the kids to customize sort of their avatars and things like that. So those are some examples. But yeah, your question was ultimately about, are we doing live uh, Zoom-like experiences? Um, yes, part of the day. So basically... A Prisma Learner's Day consists of some time live with other kids and a coach and some time working asynchronously through their project um, or through what we call missions. We have math missions and writing missions with the support of a coach. So every Prisma Learner is given a mentor coach that's available to them really whenever they need their coach. They can message them uh, and, and get the coach coach's help. Um, Victoria, how'd you put all this together, the curriculum, the the projects, and know that this was all, I don't know, safe and strong and helpful for kids? Well, the honest truth is we didn't know until we tried it. And so the first brave families that joined Prisma, we were very clear, this is a pilot. We really believe this can be a better approach to education. But if we get to the end of this semester and decide it hasn't been what we dreamed it would be, then we will call it a good attempt and, and move on. But the good news is it worked better than we dreamed. So, um, you know, we, Alan and I did a lot of reading, a lot of inspiration from other models out there. We use that. Sorry, Alan is my co-founder, also my husband. Um, yep. We use that to craft, I would say, a vision of what our dream school would be for our kids. That was the model. Dream school for our kids. Um, although they're not quite fourth grade yet. Uh, and then we hired some, um, we hired a team. We hired, we happened to hire two amazing curriculum developers. I think we got very lucky that their skill sets complement each other. Full-time curriculum developers? Yep. And we who are also teaching? Full-time curriculum developers. That's all. All they do is curriculum. Yep. Yep. And that is uh, part of it. our so, model. Yeah. And it's something that shocked me the more I learned about the education system is the extent to which teachers are expected to create their own curriculum. So on top of, you know, managing classrooms with 30 or 40 kids and all the grading that has to happen and all the, you know, bureaucracy. I thought they were given, I thought they were told what to teach, but then the individual lesson plans, they create themselves based on whatever. Yeah, they're given on... a set of standards and it depends on the school district and the school, but there's still a lot put on the teacher to really come yeah. up with the lesson plan, uh, which is all well and good if you've got tons of time on your hands, um, but teachers no, don't. I, I actually, I interviewed an entrepreneur who created a platform where teachers could give their lesson plans to, or sell it to other yes. teachers. That's very successful. And there's some, you've yeah. seen that, right? Yeah, yeah, really successfully. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I see. So you're saying, well, we don't want them to go to those platforms and pay for it. We don't want them to have to figure it out. We have curriculum developers. They're going to do it. And so this was in the back of your head as you were thinking about where do we send our kids? Yeah. Which, by the way, total barrier thing to do. My kid had a place in pre-K 
before he was born. I paid every month because I know that all these other type A's are going to beat me to it. Yeah. So, okay, so you're doing that. And then as I understand it, Alan, am I pronouncing his name right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Said to you, look, COVID hit, parents are at home. If we're going to do this at any point, this is the time to get started. And so when was this? March 2020, April 2020 that you jumped Uh, in? I think it was April 2020 when we officially incorporated the company. Got it. So you said, we're definitely going to do this. And then you went to friends and you said, you're teaching at home. Do you want some help doing this? We have this vision. Will you buy into it? They signed up and they became the first the first people to go through the program. Basically, yeah. I mean, step number one was finding curriculum developers, fleshing that out enough that we felt good enough about what we had planned. We did that before we tried to get families on board. In fact, we didn't get families on board until I think about late July, August. So this was all very condensed. Um, we hired curriculum developers. We hired uh, our first coaches. We put up a website. We, yeah, I mean, we promoted this on our social media channels and we ended up with a few direct friends in the program, but most families that were in that Friend of a friend got, and it was all in the same grade or spread out over multiple grades. Why'd you start with fourth? Why didn't you start with kindergarten where I think one of your kids was or first grade where your other one was? So this was just after they could feel comfortable doing it themselves, but before they're set into some kind of process and their parents are... Right, and their parents are too hesitant to experiment. How did that first batch go?
Mm. Yeah. What do you do about socialization, about getting to play and getting to do things that are active? My wife right now is in, uh, she's in San Francisco because her team, which has gone remote, just needs to meet up in person a few times a year. And she's sending me these messages and photos saying that this is so meaningful to spend time with them and to talk beyond work. I, I wonder if that's necessary with the kids who are online. And also, do you do anything to help them have relationships offline? beyond this So you're creating all these different experiences for them online to connect. What about offline? Are there are there programs that are like after school programs for for home learners? Hmm. I didn't realize those things existed. And so it's like hours after school that the kids get to go and be outdoors and play or actively play.
Mm. I like that. Tell me about the physical, The you know what? Let me just take a moment. I'll say my second sponsor is HostGator. If you need a website hosted, I, I host with HostGator. I'll give you the lowest price they have available. Great service anyway. Great low price at HostGator.com slash Mixergy. All right. I know one of the things that you and your husband were talking about is you wanted some socioeconomic diversity. And do you get that here? Do you get the, that there are some kids who are from different parts of life financially? You do. Ah. Australia can do it times with the time zones? Okay. Okay, so the hub in New Jersey is an in-person, I'm imagining they've got some facilitator who's there, am I right? Watching the kids who are all learning together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. I do feel that the what you get from having remote experiences, if a kid wants to travel somewhere, they could continue, right? Like we're going to take our Thanksgiving vacation, but it's only going to be a week. What if I want to make it two weeks? You know, what if we want to go somewhere? We should allow the kids to continue with their education. And I, I also like the idea that there's a place for them to go and be with people and be with friends. Um, and I imagine that if it's just even a shared home where three or four different kids rotate, that's helpful. But I, I would, I would prefer, I would prefer for myself a facilitator. Give me one, one teacher that you pay. It's not that expensive because teachers aren't getting paid that much anyway, and they don't have to do that much work. Leading the class with some diversity of, I guess, speed. You know, like one kid could be much faster with one subject and slower in another. And why should they be in with everyone else? Right. 
Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I do find that um, if you were an idiot in school in one language, you were you could just be an idiot in all of them in one subject. So if you sucked at reading and the teacher called on you to read out loud and you were the dope, then you feel like, well, I'm going to dope in all these classes instead of getting to be someone who shined in certain subjects completely. All right, so you you did all this, and then you got a lot of applications for educators, but you told our producer you struggled for a while with getting new students, and then you had to get into marketing. What wasn't working, and then what did you figure out that was helping you grow? Really? Why? Even public even public schools in San Francisco are are early applications. Hmm. <clears throat> I wonder if also the online experience is either a backup when you don't like what's coming up for next year or something that you have to wrestle with and then finally feel comfortable doing. What do you think? Yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't realize how, how we met. 
it was through someone named, I thought it was Elaine Shard. And then I realized in this conversation, I've just been mispronouncing his name. It's Alan. It's your husband who 11 years ago said, there's someone I think you should interview. And it was you. And that's what set this whole thing up. Wow. And you're... It's amazing that the two of you work together for so long. I'm really lit up by what you're doing here. Um, I know the two of you considered maybe you do something in the nonprofit world. I think you made the right decision going for profit and going for business. I think that there's that there's lack of innovation here because we've all been afraid. And I like that you're that you're seizing this this moment where we're all open to new ideas. All right, I told you before we got started. Before we end it. My challenge is my wife really loves this outdoorsy experience that my kids get, which um, is, I, I, I shouldn't say the name of the school, but it's its outdoor school, but I'm really lit up by what you're doing. And I, I like it at least as, as a backup for when this, and if this doesn't work out, I could say, all right, now let's try my approach. Yeah. So I think your wife is not alone. And we actually hear that. I'd say, particularly for families that have been long-term homeschoolers, because I think part of something that a lot of homeschool families love is this idea of kids learning with their hands, kids being out in nature. And so I would say three things to your wife. One is we do really very actively build in as much off-screen, hands-on learning as we can into the Prisma model. So for example, in Cities of the Future, one of the options for the kids was to design their own environmentally friendly building. And they learned all about environmentally friendly building techniques. And then they came up with a plan. And then kids physically built, you know, with materials, their design for an environmentally friendly building. Now, other kids chose to do it in Minecraft, which really lit them up. But for the families for whom it was important that kids were sort of away from their screen, we always provide project options that allow for that. Uh, you know, another example, this is sort of a hybrid model of, tactile but also on screen we do live workshops um we've done several like this where kids show up with you know a bunch of materials we've asked them to shop with and they're literally during the workshop building things with their hands like they might be you know uh be given certain stem challenges or engineering challenges or things so that's sort of the hands-on piece of it the other thing i'd say is we allow kids to sort of customize their schedule. There's certain points in the day where they have their workshop and their stand-up, but other parts of the day where they can arrange the schedule however they like. So we have a number of kids that start their day doing some Prisma. Um, they might do their stand-up and some of their Prisma um, asynchronous work. And then they go off and spend two hours doing some kind of nature program or we have uh, a kid that's doing an internship with a local carpenter and he goes <laughs> off and does that several times during the day. Other kids are just going out and um, playing sports or kicking around a ball. So, you know, you can build that into your child's day and we actively encourage families to do that. And then the final piece is, you know, it's really important that Prisma families um, supplement or accompany Prisma with extracurricular activities that get kids outside and get them with friends and you know this in-person socialization with kids of course that's also important um but we think that can be very well solved through extracurricular activities what i would i would love to see is 
like a way to dip your toe in without going all the way in. Like imagine if it's, we understand that reading can be tough for some families. We're just going to master this one thing or math can be difficult. We're going to do just this one math or one thing. And then once a parent discovers it and sees how much their kids like it and are learning, you're, you're thinking, you're thinking that way already, huh? Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned that. And we, we are thinking about that. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, we're also trying to stay focused and not spread ourselves right. too thin. But I right. think, I think we're we're developing a secret source in terms of getting kids to really light up about learning, right. getting kids from all different walks of life or in different places to right. interact with one another, and getting kids to really think very critically about topics and issues, to be able to formulate strong arguments, to be able to listen to others, to use data and evidence in their arguments that I think could make for interesting uh, sort of supplemental programs that uh, could be an entry point for for families to try out RISMA. Because, yeah, for for some families, it's a no-brainer. It's very easy. And for others, right. they would rather dip their toe in the water before they make the homeschooling. Yeah, I can imagine that there that there's a population of people who want to do homeschooling or need to because of the way that they're traveling and moving around for whom it's an easy win. Mm-hmm. I, I don't see anything like this. And then I'd love for the rest of us to be included because I think the direction you're going with this, Victoria, is it's the future. It's amazing. And it, it'll just free up families and kids. And I'm, right. I'm excited that you came back on here to do this, but I'm even more excited that you're that you're doing it. And for anyone who wants to go uh, on your site, once again, you don't have your own domain. Last time it was like wildfireapp.com. This time it's joinprisma.com. It doesn't matter. Go find it. Even if she has Q and Xs and extra letters in the name, I would go and hunt this down because I really love what you're doing. Thank you so much for being on here. Thank you. It was great conversation. It's nice to reconnect. Same here. Thanks. Thanks, everyone.